Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Eastern Border fans, I'm BT Newberg. I'm Nick. I'm Anna. And we're the hosts of Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. We explore ideas once believed to be true, but no longer. Like spontaneous generation, the idea that meat grows maggots all by itself. Or Byzantine court eunuchs cutting off your junk to get ahead. (laughs) Anyway, we were so inspired by history with humor shows like the Lesser Bonapartes and Eastern Border that we had to start our own. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher or at deadideas.net. And right now... We're doing a special promo where the first 20 people to review us on iTunes get their picture drawn in the historical time period and culture of their choosing. I'm thinking maybe a Spartan warrior or something for Glenn. I don't know about Kristaps. Maybe a Putin double, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, you could be the next person to get your picture drawn. So listen to your Lesser Bonapartes and Eastern Border, and then come check us out on Dead Ideas. Get your picture drawn. All right. Greetings, comrades. October is upon us, and while we over here in Latvia don't celebrate Halloween, it is a nice time to talk about uh, really dark subjects. Yeah, we're back to that. And to be honest, It's quite hard to find a darker subject than this one. This rivals both Chernobyl and the space race. We, in the following few episodes, because this is going to be a multi-part series, are going to talk about the Soviet repression system. Now, that includes KGB and KVD, which is the precursor of KGB, the infamous gulags and deportations to the middle of nowhere in Siberia. All that, in general, in totality. Now, this is going to be the part one, like I said, of a multi-part series on this subject, because I really want to give this subject a proper treatment and not to skim down anything and allow myself to get into the details. I think it's very necessary in this case, and uh, I hope that by the end, you'll understand why. You see, for one recent scholarship, uh, namely people from Davis Center for Russian and Eastern European Studies suggests that between 1929 and 1953, 18 million people passed through concentration camps, that is, gulags, in Soviet Union. 
and 6 million more were exiled. And I think it's high time we look at what the system really was and how it worked. Before we do anything else, time to again remind you, dear listeners, what the term Gulag means. As everything in the Soviet Union, it's an abbreviation. The full title is Главное управление лагери, or Chief Administration of Camps. Over time, this term Gulag started to mean not only the administration of the prison camps, but the camps themselves, and even wider, the whole repressive system in general. The stuff that the people who were in it called Nyasorubka, or the meat mincer. A somewhat cannibalistic version of one, actually, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Now, let's go through a, a small timeline first and look at the past. You see, Russian Empire had a proud tradition of sending its criminals to do forced labor in Siberia all the way back since they even claimed these vast research-rich and really, really cold lands for their empire. The practice actually dates back to the 17th century, where you would be sent to these places to work in state-owned prison camp companies called Katorgas. For the first time, exile to such a camp, Katorga, is mentioned in written Russian sources in 1649. It was seen as a more humane punishment at the time, when compared to death, branding, or cutting off limbs, and it was applied for various crimes, starting from dissent, from dissent and murder and ending with using smuggled tobacco, especially chewed tobacco, as that was highly illegal. And one of the more popular things was also you could be sent there for being a fortune teller, or doing anything else vastly superstitious, in conflict with the Orthodox Church. A lot of people from the intelligentsia, the intelligence, were also exiled for their views. Pushkin, by the way, was among them. But for others who weren't sent away, this whole system didn't really allow to sleep peacefully at night, so to speak. Anton Chekhov, the famous classical Russian writer and playwright, while in the height of his fame, and to a huge surprise to everyone, in 1890 went to visit these exile colonies in the Isle of Sakhalina, in the Far East, on the Pacific coast of Russia. He, in his letter to his editor, states, We have allowed millions of people to rot in prisons without any reason. Without any doubt, in a barbaric way, we have driven people in the cold, chained, making them march tens of thousands of miles. We have infected them with syphilis. We have ruined them, increased the amount of criminals in our country, but we just don't care, because that is not interesting. End quote. You see... You can spot quite a lot of things in the system that would later influence the Soviets. For example, a law adopted in 1736 stated that if people who were living in a village decided that, you know, one of them is a bad influence on the others, the bad apple, so to speak, or the black sheep, the elder of the village then had the right to confiscate the person's property then distributed among the villagers as he saw fit, and after that, force the person to move elsewhere. If the person couldn't find another place to move, the state would then send him to one of these camps. <laughs> Interestingly, later, in 1948, Khrushchev would mention this law specifically, while argumenting, uh, quite successfully actually, why a collective of farmers that don't work hard enough for the motherland should be sent to prisoner camps as a whole. That means if your call host does not produce enough of something, yeah, I, I guess we should all send you away. Now, this is before uh, before Stalin's death, after which he kind of condemned such actions and blamed Stalin for everything, but 
While Stalin was still alive, such things happened. Oh, and uh, also for uh, and, oh, and also I apologize for any sound quality issues. I'm having my cat again with me, so if you hear strange animal noises, um, I hope you won't mind that much. Now, besides the prison camps, which are located in the far east, I have to mention the other type of exile here. Forced colonization, as it was called, it turned into the mass deportations that hit us in the Baltics especially hard during the World War II and slightly after that. That meant that the people weren't sent to a prison camp, they were just sent to the literal middle of nowhere. That usually was a life sentence. And while these people were not exactly chained and abused by guards, they were much more numerous in the Tsaristere than the ones sent to camps. See, this idea was that uh, these people, even though they had to do some forced labor, they could live freely and they could move around. They the, Only the labor was forced on them. And this system... This system became ingrained in the Soviet society, because this is sort of gulag light, if you will, but sometimes really, really heavy as well. Because even though you are not forced to live in this walled-off place, you still literally have no freedom. And you are very, very far away from home, and it's minus 40 degrees out there on a warm day, so that's not as pleasant as it may sound. Then again, nothing is in comparison to gulag, but uh, yeah... Now, interestingly enough, yeah, like I said before, uh, in the Tsaristere, these people, these people sent just in exile were much more numerous than the ones actually sitting in Katorga. For example, between 1824 and 1889, about 720,000 forced colonists would be sent to Siberia. In comparison, during this time period, only about 150,000 people were sent to these Katorgas. These people, these forced colonists who were sent to Siberia, would be sent there without nothing but a bucket, an axe, and maybe a turnip or two, if they were lucky. And their goal was to start up the cities in the Far East, to colonize this area. They essentially became the first Russian citizens in these far-off lands. These were the poorest, coldest, less populated regions, obviously. And a lot of these colonists died of starvation, or just drunk themselves to death. Because entertainment and uh, any books and anything like that was almost non-existent. The crime rates were extremely high. An interesting fact is that there were very little women among them. Never over 15% of these colonists. Now, I think you can draw the nature of the consequences of this yourselves, especially about the nature of the crimes there. Interestingly enough, Bolsheviks in Gulag... in Interestingly enough, Bolsheviks in these Katorgas and in these villages were actually treated better than other criminals. Because at the time, weirdly enough, political criminals actually were considered not so dangerous as the murderers and other associated folk, and thus they were allowed to actually use books and paper and writing supplies and and, uh, things to entertain yourself. And after a while, up to the revolution, these uh, Katorgas... And this exile actually became more and more lax. You could actually escape from it. It wasn't so strict as it had been in the late 18th and early 19th century. Late 19th century and very early 20th century saw them becoming really quite lax. And uh, you can see in the pictures that some prisoners actually have uh, have their fur, fur coats and, and the caps on and everything. And they're actually not forced to do much 
so they started to become more and more lax. Trotsky was there, and uh, interestingly enough, Stalin himself was arrested and sent to this exile four times in total. He managed to escape three of these times, by the way. One time from Irkutsk and twice from Volgograd Oblast. And it's interesting enough that uh, he actually hated these places. But why he hated this is kind of morbid, if you think about it. Because he was also a bank robber. See, the thing is, he thought that these camps were too nice. That you could escape from them. He thought that, you know, if he would get in power, no such escape would be possible. That would be much harsher and these people are just not working hard enough. Yeah, well, let's just say he learned from these experiences. Now, all these katorgas might sound a bit scary, but uh, the beginnings of gulags, like we know them, have their start in the very beginning of the Soviet era. Like I said, here's a small timeline here. August 1918, Vladimir Lenin orders gulags, which I've mentioned before, the wealthier peasants here, uh, priests and other quote-unquote unreliables to be, quote, locked up in a concentration camp outside of town. Next month, September 1918, Red Terror is initiated by Lenin. Arrest and incarceration of, quote, landowners, industrialists, merchants, priests, and anti-Soviet officers, all to be detained in concentration camps. The concentration camps grew, and um, in December 1920, there were already 107 registered concentration camps. On 1923, three years later, the famous Solovitsky Monastery in northwestern Russia was turned over to OGPU, which was the precursor of NKVD and KGB, to use as a prison camp. In 1925, a decision to make systematic use of prison labor out of economic necessity and for large-scale construction projects was adopted. This was the beginning of the famous work of the famous free labor projects, so to speak, in the Soviet era. This was later expanded in 1929, a decision to create mass camp system as an element in transforming Soviet Union into an industrialized country was established. This all led up to mass incarcerations, and in the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938, Great Terror by Stalin, about 1 in 20 people in Soviet Union were arrested and put into these camps. It's about 5% of population were there. By the, by the 1939, there were these camps in almost every region and every time zone in Soviet Union. 1,672,000 people were in prison camps by this point, approximately. In July 1941 to July 1944, well, uh, during the World War II, there were mass amnesties. In total, nine, 975,000 prisoners during these uh, four years were released into Red Army over these uh, this period. At the same time, a quarter of all the Gulag prisoners died from starvation in 1941 uh, to 1942, in the winter. That's approximately the same amount of people who died in the Siege of Leningrad by the Nazis. So yeah, mass amnesties followed because uh, the Soviet Union needed manpower. There were armies made out from these people in Gulags. Because, you know, free labor, free soldiers. In 1950... 
the prison population reached its highest level ever. 2,525,000 people were in prison camps, in gulags by this time. Now notice that I haven't mentioned any exiled ones. Because, yeah, like I said, in total, in total, 18 million people passed through camps and 6, six million more were uh, suffering from these exiles. This, this number, these 2.5 million people in prison camps, that's just the highest number that there ever were at one time in these camps. That doesn't mean that uh, some people shifted, no. It's also mostly, you know, only about 10% of people got released from them, because the rest of them just died there. Which also is a nice detail to know. Now, this old thing, this very strict imprisonment in gulags, lasted up to March 27, 1953, where amnesty for prisoners with less than five-year sentences was declared, amnesty for pregnant women, women with children, and all children under 18. That means one people, one million people were released from these gulags. Now, the weird part is, just think about it. It seems like a major improvement, you know? A lot of people get released, but uh, now that you know that there were pe- from this decision, we can learn that there were pregnant women and children under 18 forced in gulags. You could have a newborn child there and they wouldn't get released. They wouldn't get sent, sent back to anyone. They would just sit there, living in extreme poverty and cold and forced to harsh labor without any education after, you know, you were age, aged, after you were old enough to do any manual labor. And that, that is kind of the true cruelty of the Soviet Union. It just didn't care about anything. Especially not about manpower. A lot of people say that, and this manpower is especially important because of all of these prisoners there who were just enlisted into the army. They really didn't care about the losses and these whole losses as an extreme tragedy. Yeah, it became a major tragedy only after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because during the Soviet era, they were all seen as heroes. There wasn't actually not that much of a mourning for the the people who had died in World War II. Because yeah, some of them were these gulag guys. Quite a lot of them were these gulag guys. So why would you worry about them? They're not even human to think about it. In uh, December 1953, Beria, at that time the leader of KGB, was executed, which will become very important later. Next year, 1954, many restrictions were lifted on prisoners remaining in the Gulag system. They could finally, finally, receive mail from home and actually buy some warm clothing for themselves. They started to get paid very, very little, but they got some small, very small repayment for their work. Because of all of these new systems after Stalin, because then the Soviet Union moved into their this stagnation era with which we started. Which culminated into 1956, in Khrushchev's secret speech in the 20th Congress, of the Communist Party, which acknowledged these excesses of Stalin and his associates. Throughout the whole of 1950s, these arrests of dissidents continued. Some were in these camps, some in psychiatric hospitals, which went on up to Andropov, who made them very popular. 
but the old gulags weren't as massive as they were before. Sure, dissidents were sent there, but Soviet Union had figured out more, let's just say subtle, but no less terrifying ways how to deal with the dissidents. The prisons and the prison camps themselves, the gulags, were just completely shot down only in 1986 when Gorby issued a general pardon for all political prisoners and shut these things down for good. Now, weirdly enough, 1986 is also the year of Chernobyl catastrophe. So, you know, he might have done this as a PR stunt or something, but I think that he really tried. Really tried to be a, be a good leader, I suppose. But, um, yeah, not that he succeeded much. And again, yeah, that is the short timeline of gulags. And, and don't think that between 1956 and 1986, during these 30 years, there were no gulags. No, of course. Most people were just sent to psychiatric hospitals. But the Zeks still continued to mine uranium for the Soviet Union. Then again... This is uh, the very short timeline version, in the beginning, so that you know approximately what's going on. But, as with everything, and as you probably know where we're going with this, the full story is much more complex. Much more human. Means meat human, but still. We are talking about millions of innocent people who were incarcerated in the Gulag system or sent to exile in Siberia, where they had to build new towns from nothing, living in the cold. They were serving sentences of 5 to 20 years of hard labor. Prisoners in these camps, they worked outdoors in the mines, in arid regions and in the Arctic Circle. They had no clothing, no tools, no shelter, no food. They most, most, in the most times, didn't even have clean water. We, we can never know, we can never adequately represent how many of these prisoners suffered from starvation or illness or were abused by guards and, and just had their, had their limbs frozen off of them. An immense pe- amount of people died. It's crazy. Because it's just more than a half of the people imprisoned in gulags just died. See, more people passed through the gulags for a much longer period of time than through Nazi concentration camps. Yet, the gulag is still not nearly as well known. The gulag camps were also often ignored by the West uh, during the war and straight after the war. For example... I wrote my master's degree, master's thesis in philosophy about the works of Heidegger, which is in the West sometimes condemned for being a Nazi. Well, he really, well, what he did is that he didn't step down as the rector of the university while Nazis were in power in the early years when the war hadn't even started, and you know he kind of was in the party for him for a while. Then he died later, but. You know, he gets a lot of blame for being a Nazi, even though only thing he did was kept his position, you know, as as an, in the administration of university. And that's kind of doing injustice to him, because his philosophy, especially in phenomenology, is really great. And his being in time is one of the greatest books ever written. But if you want to condemn him, if you want to condemn someone with being somewhat of a collaborator in an uncertain era... Then we don't often speak about, for example, with about Mr. Sartre, who was a fanatical Stalinist. The Sartre, the famous existentialist from France, 
he wasn't ever in the Communist Party, but he said, oh, well, I'm not in the party, so it's not my job to criticize the Soviet Union. And he said that, you know, even though the camps are kind of a, a bit bad, he really hates all the bourgeoisie press that depicts them as, as, as and puts attention to them because it, it makes communists look bad. But the communists were bad. There are these gulags here. It's, it's kind of crazy that I can then only one type of death camps and the other the other type of death camps, essentially another type of these horrid camps are are just really left there. So that's why I'm doing this about both the exiles and deportations and, and these gulags. Now I do have to mention that the Nazi concentration camps and the gulags, they differ in a very, very important way. See, Nazi camps were used to target and exterminate groups of people, most notably the Jewish population. The gulag wasn't exactly used as an extermination tool. It was used as a tool of ongoing political control. The gulag system, it wasn't targeted at any specific, particular group of people. All ethnic groups, all nationalities and people and members of all religions were imprisoned. Everyone. It was a class rather than an ethnic system, I'd say. And I, I would I would even go as far to say as your your class didn't matter as much if you pissed off Mr. Stalin. And if you somehow, somehow, managed to survive your sentence, you would be released at the end of it. But we, as far as we know of, there were no plans of releasing any of the prisoners of the Nazi camps. So there's this difference, because Nazis were more about short-term extermination, while gulags were about long-term imprisonment and total domination of the society, with, you know, killings thrown in for fun. That's one of the biggest differences. Then again, Stalin did know about the Holocaust, and Hitler was well informed about the gulags. I would have to say they uh, darkly and weirdly co-inspired each other. In a weird way, you know, evil begets evil. And it's crazy how we how we often even think about the fact here that how can you just sign a document that sends people away and forces them to die in a slow, miserable way? And sometimes quite quickly. Either with either with gassing or burning or a pickaxe to the head or just a few bullets. And this is where it kind of gets dark. So, before we get to that part, let's take a short break. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, listeners, and thank you for joining us in this serious but important series on the Eastern Border. We want to thank every single one of you that listens and enjoys our podcast. 
We are currently working on getting all of our episodes on YouTube so that it is easier for you to share them with your family and friends. Also, a giant thank you to our Patreon supporters and those who support us on PayPal. We are finally going to read out all of those great patrons who support us $5 and up. These are the wonderful people who support us $5 and up per episode. Steve Schweitzer, Dave Green, Hudson Lambert, Pete, Pete Buescher, hi Pete, Kyle Paranello, Matthew Niemer, John Anderson, Ferlin Sutton Leo, James Hulgan, Aaron Hawkins, Michael Santos, Alice, Daniel Slater, Michael, Jacob Brinkman, Amy Thomas, Ted Brock, Len Martin, Ian Bordeaux, Fred, Martin Cordero, Mark Anthony Cabrera, Morgan Blythe, Richard Little, Jennifer Mullins, Ryan Brockstein, Chris Sasso, Monica Martinson, Ross H., and Andrew Postuka. I apologize if I mispronounce some of the surnames or names, but you all are great comrades of ours, and we hope that our motherland feeds your hungry mouths. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron and join raffles for fun Soviet things like money and medals and pins, you can do that at www.patreon.com slash the eastern border. You can listen to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or download us at theeasternborder.lv. We are on Twitter as well. Write us up at The Eastern Border or on YouTube as The Eastern Border. Join our Facebook page for silly and not-so-silly updates and news. And now, a deep breath, and let's get back to the show. And welcome back to the show. Now, let's go back in the past. Let's start from kind of the early years, the rise of the gulags, so to speak. See, they got extremely massive, starting from 1930 to 1933. Then the great campaigns against these kulaks were established. Beginning in 1930, peasants were either arrested or sent into this exile, building new towns up in Siberia, or immediately shot or ice-picked on the, sus- on, the sus- on the suspicion of being enemies of the people. See, these peasants were required to turn all of their grain over to the state. Anyone in possession of grain could be accused of hoarding. And I have mentioned this twice already, this is where Pavlik Morozov comes in. Others might be labeled kulaks, again, the word means fist, but this thing could be used to just accuse anyone of anything. Any peasant of non-Soviet methods, simply because his personal crops or livestock were actually thriving. That was especially popular in the Baltic countries, since we had enjoyed quite a large degree of liberties in comparison to in comparison to other other Soviet states later in the 1940s, because we were under capitalism from 1918 to 1940, we had our own country. So we had learned to be better at just farming and everything, while the Soviet economy was, well, you know, the usual Soviet economy, all the way from the revolution up to its end. So a lot of people were just 
judge then shot just because they owned an extra cow. Just because they had hired some farmhands to help them. That was also considered exploitation. They were the rich exploitators of peasant labor. If you had an extra cow, a horse, and a farmhand there. It was terrible. Also, obviously, just a jealous neighbor could you just could just accuse you of being anti-Soviet. In total, between 1930 and 1933, about over 2 million peasants were exiled to Siberia, and about 100,000 more were sentenced to these gulags. In 1934, something known as the Kirov Affair happened. There was this steady stream of arrests for anti-Soviet activities all the way up to up and through 1934, which I mentioned in the timeline. But this affair kind of set off a wave of mass arrests and execution, this time claiming multiple thousands of lives. See, Sergei Kirov was at this point the head of the Leningrad branch of the Communist Party and a close associate of Stalin. And he was assassinated. During the evening of this assassination, Stalin himself issued a call for the execution of anyone conducting anti-Soviet terror. Because he was really, really mad that someone in his controlled Soviet Union would dare to oppose him, even though the people were not happy, especially in Leningrad, which was previously known as St. Petersburg and was the center of Russian intelligentsia, all the universities and art. This is where the Hermitage is located. This is where, kind of, (laughs) the stereotype goes that in St. Petersburg only the cultured people live. Obviously, they were hit the hardest by the communist revolution. And if you have Russian immigrants to the United States who came up just after the revolution, most likely they were from St. Petersburg. This is where most people died and they were really rebellious. At times, a lot of times actually, Soviet people were rebellious against the regime, except that most people never found out about it. After this Kirov affair, during the next few months... About 40,000 residents of Leningrad were arrested and either sent to gulags or shot. This way of arrests was known at the time as the Kirov Flood. 40,000. In about three months of time. Imagine your city being deprived by your government by 40,000 people who are all just sent to gulags or shot away. Just because they have a university education. That, at most times, was enough of reason to just put in put in the nice KGB cards, or at that time NKVD uh, accusation cards. And, you know, don't let, let's, let's be honest here, sometimes they did a, just a bit of ethnic cleansing as well. You know, there are documents about Latvians being sent to gulags, their accusation being a Latvian. Because we are all scum. Same happened to Jewish people. Same happened to Poles, Lithuanians, all of us here. Uh, sometimes Soviets were just too bored to actually put an accusation on your card, but most of the time they, they managed to scribble up a nationality of yours, at least, or enemy of the state if they actually bothered. But this was nothing when compared to what happened later in the 1937-1938. This is the Great Terror, the purges of Stalin, where he killed off most of his own Czech officers and most of his lackeys over there to purge out the system. This terror, it stands out as one of the most brutal periods of repression under Stalin. 
that's saying a lot, because everything under Stalin was brutal periods of repression. It began in July 1937 and ended in November 1938. It was directed at various groups perceived by the Soviet leadership as either real or just sometimes imaginary, again, enemies of the people. This dehumanization of people and this being an enemy of the whole nation and, you know, this accounting to the other people and just showing in the radio and everywhere that we are just dealing with the enemies of the people is what, what really is, what, what's really scary here. They legitimized it this way. So when someone says that among you there are many who are your actual enemies and that you should condemn whole groups to something, I urge you to think twice about it. See, the arrest there in the purge began with their own Communist Party members who were accused of counter-revolutionary activities. And, obviously, then, as usual in the Soviet Union, they spread to family members of these party members, and then later to the general public. During the Great Terror, 1,575,259 people in total were arrested and more than half of them were shot. If about 700,000 people were shot during the terror, it's it's about, about half of them, rough estimations, and that's even rounding down. This means that during these months, during this these months from July and November, 1,500 people were shot every single day. It's like you wake up in the morning and the next day your town has 1,500 people less. And so for months. <laughs> By this point, the gulag system also had achieved its economical purpose as a source of free slave labor. By 1940, one-third of the Soviet Union's gold was mined in gulags. Over 60% of USSR's coal and lumber supplies came from gulags. Later, the same happened with uranium for Soviet nuclear weapons, mined by the so-called Zeks, who were left there after 1953, mined by these Zeks with pickaxes, because who cares what happens with these enemies of the state, right? Life of a human has no value in the Soviet Union. Not because it's infinitely valuable, because it has... No value. <laughs> yeah, enemies. Who were then these enemies of the state sent there, in general, besides political people? Well, you can divide them in kind of multiple groups when to look at when you when you want to look at this in a bit more detail. Firstly, these were people who actually committed crimes such as murders, rapes, and robbery. You know the things which you could get, which you would be prosecuted for in any country. But, these were criminals. Of course, they continued their criminal activities in the camps. They, they robbed supply trucks before clothing or food could be distributed. They smuggled in stuff. They committed beatings and murders in the prisons. And this was just a vast minority of all the inmates and deported. They also were the guys who often collaborated with the Soviet authorities, as mentioned in my organized crime episode. And these were also the people who formed the elite of the prisoners within the grinder. They were the guys who ruled over the place. They, these are the guys where, from which our kind of prison language comes from. 
Then, there are the second group of people. There are these people who committed crimes, quote-unquote, so minor that they would not even be punishable in other countries. These crimes included unexcused absences from work, or pity thefts such as taking bread from a restaurant kitchen to feed one's children. These types of criminals were the vast majority of prisoners in the gulag system, about 70% of them. And they were punished by sentences of 8 to 10 years of forced labor. Their so-called trials usually took about 5 minutes, if there was one at all. These people also include being a Latvian, being a kulak, all of these random miscellaneous things because someone has just denounced you and some something someone told that you might have a small amount of grain in, in your home. These people who were just sent there for, eh, you know, whatever reason. And finally, there were the, the true enemies of the state, the ones who actually called themselves such. These were about uh, 25% of the imprisoned. Wait a minute, small, small break here, small break here. Talking about these true enemies of the state, we have this nice KGB museum here in Riga. Recently I got visited by David, an American listener, who currently studies in Stockholm for his PhD. And as a part of the tour in the city, we went there. He had visited the Stasi prison museum before in Germany, but at the end of the day he said that things were darker and harsher here, and that it was clearly visible that the USSR had it quite a bit eviler, I would say, than, than that part. Stasi had some weird prisoner exchange, uh, I'm sorry, uh, prisoner exchange in the sense that it's something like student exchange programs between the nice Cheka people and the Stasi people. So if you've been there, you know approximately how it's been, except imagine that being even worse. Now what exactly happened there in the KGB prisons and how the system worked and how you were arrested... That will be there, maybe in this show, maybe in part two, when I'll get to the personal histories. But right now, I want to use this to explain this um, whole enemy of the state thing. You see, on the wall of this KGB museum, inside, in the exposition hall, we have a very special article of the Soviet criminal code printed there. The one that makes you the enemy. The thing that made you call the 58er in the prison slang. As you can obviously understand, we're talking about the Article 58 of the Soviet Criminal Code. It seemed funny to my guests, because article in Latvian is spelled just like pants. It's pant, pronounced like that, but spelled just like pants. So at one point they were joking about uh, these pants murdering everyone. Which is kind of true. This article, adopted in 1928, was the thing that allowed the state to basically arrest and kill anyone they ever wanted. Let's go through it, shall we? <clears throat> Article 58.1. Definition of counter-revolutionary activity. Quote. A counter-revolutionary action is an, any action aimed at overthrowing, undermining, or weakening of the power of the workers and peasants, Soviets, and governments of the USSR, and Soviet and autonomous republics. Or at the undermining or weakening of the external security of the Soviet Union, 
and main economical, political and national achievements of the proletariat revolution. <laughs> Imagine this. If you somehow, weirdly, undermine main economical, political and national achievements, that is, if you say that anything really is bad that the Soviet Union has done, you are already performing a cultural revolutionary activity. If you undermine anything, and by undermine, we really mean just saying that something is not as excellent and amazing as intended, then uh, it's just amazing. Now, this thing, which is interesting, is that it was not limited to anti-Soviet acts. By the, quote, international solidarity of workers, end quote, any other workers' state by that they mean the Soviet satellites, was protected by this article. One of the more famous examples is that in the Soviet occupation zone of Germany, many people were interned as spies for for suspected opposition to the Stalinist regime. That is, that is, they had contacted organizations who were based in the western occupation zones and just, just wanted to work with them like Red Cross or just get some food, maybe. Now, on the basis of this Article 58... They uh, were just imprisoned and and punished. In the NKVD, special camp of Bautzen, 66% of all the inmates fell into this category. If you even spoke with the Westerners, you could just go to your camp. Now imagine being a liberty-feeling, liberty-loving German who doesn't like Hitler and the Soviets come... And besides the mass rapes and murders which the Soviets committed, you just kind of, you know, want to have some food and you're happy that Hitler is gone. So what do you, what do, you do? You, you want to go to maybe to the Americans or to the British or to the French or something and, and maybe talk with them about improving your life. And then you get the se- then you get sent to a concentration camp, essentially. Now, isn't this fun? And this, uh, this thing is also why, why the Hungarians and Czechs rebelled and why the satellite states feared the Soviets so much, because... Under Soviet law, they had jurisdiction over every socialist country on the planet Earth. And they can arrest anyone in not only the Soviet Union, but in any socialist country on planet Earth according to their own criminal law. And they had the power to do so. And who of these socialist countries would oppose them? <laughs> but let's continue, shall we? 58.1a. Treason. Death sentence or 10 years in prison... Both cases with property confiscation. 58.1b. Treason by military personnel. Death sentence with property confiscation. 58.1v. Because Russian alphabet goes A, B, V, G, stuff like that. So 58.1v. In the case of flight of the offender in treason, subject to 58.1b, military personnel only, his relatives were subjected to 5 to 10 years of imprisonment with confiscation of 5 years of Siberia in exile, depending on the circumstances. Either they helped, or knew and didn't report, or simply lived with the offender. So if you, even if you didn't help the dude who was committing counter-revolutionary treason, even if you just didn't even know about this, even if you didn't, didn't do anything yourself, but just simply were a family member of this person, still... 5 to 10 years of imprisonment with confiscation of property, or 5 years of Siberian exile. You know, the fun times. 
581G. Non-reporting of a treason by a military man. 10 years of imprisonment. Non-reporting by others. Offense by Article 5812, which we'll get later. Just just notice how many uh, things go to 5812. 58.2. Armed uprising or intervention with the goal to seize the power. Up to death with confiscation. Including formal recognition as the enemy of workers. And then here, here we come to... Here we come to nice, 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 awesome parts. 58.3. Contact with foreigners with counter-revolutionary purposes as defined by 58.1 are subject to Article 58.2. Now remember, if you... uh, These counter-revolutionary acts can be anything. Even just stating that, you know, maybe Soviets are and they should do something better and everything is not as great. Now if you go to a foreign person, just to... Just to a random tourist who comes into your town and you say, Ah, you know, we have some some lack of food. It was better before. I wish the Soviets would did something about it. And if that was a KGB agent, reminder you, reminder to you, up to death is confiscation, including including formal recognition as an enemy of the working workers. You could be killed for speaking with a foreigner. Because this just continues on and on. Moving on. 58-4. Any kind of help to international bourgeoisie, which, not recognizing the equality of communist political system, strives to overthrow it. Punishment similar to 58-2. Again, 58-2 is up to death with confiscation of property, including formal recognition as the enemy of the workers. So technically speaking, which happened was that um, if you were a prisoner of war in the Stalin's era in the World War II, and you were a Soviet prisoner of war, this article, 58-4 was the one you were judged after this, and uh, after which the most people were shot after they were returned there. Because that was considered, you know, not dying on your duty, not doing your, your, your duties. That means you wanted to escape, that means you were, you were committing treason. That means you were helping the international bourgeoisie, because you must have told them something. Interestingly enough, if you would be a Soviet citizen who would, um, for example, smuggle in bread to, Jew- to Jewish people of the of the Nazi Germany in concentration camps. I mean, you're a Jew, you are in the concentration camp of Nazi Germany, and a Soviet soldier smuggles you some bread, then after the bread, and uh, and after the war, you would become, you know, a West Germany citizen, for one, or an Israeli citizen. This would also be a, this would also be punishable by 58-4, because any kind of help to international bourgeoisie, which, uh, after the Stalin's purges, was considered to be most of the jury, most of the Jewish people in the planet Earth. Because if this Jew whom you helped wasn't a fanatical socialist, you had helped an international bourgeoisie. Didn't matter that they were in the Nazi concentration camp about to be killed and you were just a decent human being. They weren't Soviets. You could be put to death for even providing help to these people. And believe it or not, Many were. 58.5. Urging any foreign entity to declaration of war, military intervention, blockade, capture of state property, breaking diplomatic relations, breaking international treaties, and other aggressive actions against USSR. Similar to 58.2. 58.6. Espionage. Punishment similar to 58.2. What is espionage? Eh, nobody knows, nobody cares, death. Death, confiscation of property, family goes to prison. Fine. 
undermining of state industry, transport, monetary circulation, or credit system, as well as cooperative societies and organizations, with counter-revolutionary purpose, as defined by 58.1, by means of the corresponding usage of the state institutions, as well as by opposing their formal functioning. Punishment, same as 58.2. Note, and this this is uh, straight from the picture on the wall there, the offense, according to this article, was known as wrecking, and the offenders were called wreckers. Like Luddites or, or something. 58.8. Terrorist acts against representatives of Soviet power or of workers and peasant organizations. Same as 58.2. A terrorist acts could involve uh, not giving all of your grain away to these people. Again, up to death, mostly death. Uh, death, Siberia, gulags, confiscation of all property, family members exiled as, exiled as well. Fun times. 58.9. Damage of transport, communication, water supply, warehouses, and other buildings or state and communal property with counter-revolutionary purposes defined in 58.1. Guess what the punishment is? Same as 58.2, as usual. 58.10. Anti-Soviet and counter-revolutionary propaganda and agitation. At least six months of imprisonment. In the conditions of unrest or war... And uh, there were a lot of reasons for unrest, and they can find unrest anywhere. Guess what, kids? 58.2 all over again! Oh boy, this this kind of uh, cheerfulness is the only way how I can read through this uh, read through this article 58. I'm, I'm very sorry. Now, 58.11. Any kind of organizational or support actions related to the preparation or execution of the above crimes is equated to the corresponding offenses and prosecuted by the corresponding articles. Basically, even if you're not involved in any way, but you know, you you made a coffee for a guy who turned... You work in a cafe, a state cafe. You make a coffee for the guy who apparently is a spy. You're a spy now, death. You can be you can be prosecuted for this because these are all so vague and so technical that the local saying goes: "We just need to arrest him. We will find something. We'll just find something." Fifty-eight twelve, not reporting of a counter-revolutionary activity, at least six months of imprisonment. So even if you don't just go to the cops to tell someone about your dad or mom doing something in this huge list which can mean literally anything. You could get at least six months of imprisonment. They can arrest you for literally anything. Interestingly enough, counter-revolutionary activity by national symbols also included owning a flag. Basically, out and being in, a, I don't know, Boy equivalent, we had these ice organizations, the equivalent of being essentially in the Boy Scouts. If you were in the Boy Scouts while in, um, like, uh, independent Latvia, you were an enemy of the state counter-revolutionary activity. Because these things, they didn't have forward time. These things had, like, if, if this, even though the Soviet power didn't exist here uh, up to 1940, you could be uh, punished for crimes, according to this article, f- for crimes committed earlier. In, for example, twenties or thirties, uh, even even though even though the Soviet power didn't exist here, and even though that's totally illegal by any sensible society, but not that the KGB really really cared about such minute details as justice. Like I said, the main reason for this article was just to be for 
for the state to be legally able to imprison anyone they wanted and send anyone they really, really wanted to, uh, to to Siberia, to gulags. This was a tool of pure fear-mongering. How this, again, worked, the specifics and details will be in part two, but you just have to understand this, that uh, this article is as paradoxical and as vague as it humanly gets. And just imagine this, imagine this, okay, China invades the United States of America tomorrow. And any American, and if they use this logic by Article 58, this would mean that if China would invade America, they could arrest any American citizen for owning a United States flag. And send them to whatever war camps they wanted. That's just an example, obviously. Nothing against my Chinese listeners, if I have any. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, just think about it. It's like, you get invaded by another country, you get taken over, and just for having the flag of the old country at your home, not having burned it the moment they entered the country and just it laying down there somewhere, you get to send to gulags. For having the old currency which was, in Latvia's case, we had these coins of which some were actual silver. If you had these coins, also a crime. You're either hoarding wealth, and you and they had, like, uh, the national heraldry of uh, Latvia on it. It's, it's terrible. That's the old bourgeoisie symbols. Like, uh, it, it, like, it would be the same as, I don't know, European Union sending people to prison for throwing out their old currency after the adoption of euros. It's that silly. It's that terrible, and again, 18 million people passed through this system. 6 million more were exiled to Siberia. (laughs) We're not even talking about these who were just arrested and and died in regular prisons all over the country. It's kind of crazy. And this non-reporting of a counter-revolutionary activity, even if you are not aware of this counter-revolutionary activity, and if you just happen to work at the same place as the guy who was accused of this, and you could be accused of anything, you still can go to prison up to 6 months. No, but this is not even it. 58.30. Active struggle against the revolutionary movement of Tsarist personnel and members of counter-revolutionary governments during the civil war. Same as 58.2. So if you just happen to be a, be, be a dude who happened to be on the wrong side during the civil war, oh no, no, death. Punishment. Oh, and uh, this, as this is counter-revolutionary activity... If any of your family members happen to be fighting on the white side and the Tsarist side in the civil war, oh yeah, punishment, death. Uh, confiscations, Siberia, gulags. And, and the last one, 5814, which is added on June 6th, uh, 1937. Counter-revolutionary sabotage. That is, conscious non-execution or deliberately careless execution of defined duties aimed at the weakening of the power or the government and of the functioning of the state apparatus, is subject to at least one year of freedom deprivation and under especially aggravating circumstances up to the highest measure of social protection. Execution by shooting with confiscation of property. That's like 58.2, isn't it? It's, it's very nice. Now, as you might understand from this 58.14, this means if you don't work hard enough in the kolkhoz and you don't provide everything you can get, you can also be sent to gulags or just shot. And as everyone and their grandma was slacking off because there was no purpose of working whatsoever because you didn't get paid and you had no hopes of being promoted or getting any wealth whatsoever, anyone living in Kolkhoz, even if you didn't do anything else, didn't even speak English or anything, yeah, you could be sent to gulags. Oh yeah, by the way, another interesting reason for people being sent abroad, even the knowledge of foreign languages. Because why would you need to know English or French or German if you weren't a spy? 
So if you were smart enough to know, say, two or three languages in the Soviet Union, that also put you on charge for being a spy. It was enough to convict you. Now, um, in in later years, in 1958, later in 1950s, I think 1958 or 1956, Khrushchev kind of of made these laws less harsh. He reworked them, but they were in power all time. They, They just became a bit less harsh. But essentially, this Article 58 allowed anyone in the KGB to arrest everyone and anyone, and they would pin something on you. This was the main tool of the Soviet government to make sure that everyone knew that they had no power, and no freedom. This is actually one of the more scariest parts of of the Soviet Union that I actually covered, I think. Because it's not like it's not like we're talking only about these people in gulags. Because the rest of the Soviet Union was just known as Bolshaya Zona, the big prison. Because always remember when we're talking about the Soviet Union and the satellite countries, we're talking about the prison. More lax, less lax, but you know, how else would you call a country whose who like whose border guard forces have artillery that are, that is aimed at their own people to prevent them from escaping? Any sane man would call it a prison. And who organized all of this mess? Who started this in in truest form in Stalin's era? We have to talk about the NKVD leaders here, the secret police or NKVD, NKVD in English pronunciation, I suppose, officially called the State Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which was a precursor to KGB, which was the Committee of of, uh, the Safety of the Government, Uh, they carried out the arrests and imprisonments. The leaders of the NKVD under Stalin were in order. Uh, Grigory Jagoda, born 1891, died in 1938. He was the head commissar of NKVD from 1934 up to 1936. He was arrested in March 1937 and shot in March 1938 at the height of the Great Terror. Second one after that was Nikolai Yezhov, 1895 to 1940. He was also popularly known as the Bloody Dwarf. He was appointed the commissar of NKVD in August 1936. He presided over the Great Terror in its entirety. He was removed from his post in 1938 and sentenced to death for his alleged mistakes during the purges, which, according to Stalin, included lack of witnesses or corroborating evidence. Basically, Stalin just wanted to clean his hands off of him because this dude just knew too much, knew too much about how the state operated and the... You know, there was a need to deal with this person, so to speak. He was arrested in 1939 and shot in 1940. By the time of Yezhov's arrest, one of every 20 people in the country had been arrested. Every other family had someone in prison. After Yezhov was executed in 1940, his image disappeared from official photographs. He's extra famous for that. You know, he is the guy whom, if you Google up these Stalin's photos, with Stalin walking around with someone and then someone disappearing, yeah, that's Yezhov. I'll try to put these pictures in the show notes if I find them in nice quality. Now, after him, 
uh, came Lavrenti Beria, 1899 to 1953. He was the most famous of all of these guys. Beria became the head of the NKVD in 1938. He initiated reforms in the Gulag system in order to make these camps more kind of productive, more economically productive. He also created the Sharashka camps, which are the specific research facilities staffed by imprisoned scientists. This is where Karalyov and the Soviet space program was born. He was the guy who was responsible for just imprisoning smart enough scientists so that they can't um, commit counter-revolutionary activities while speaking to you foreigners. And this is where scientists lost their teeth and were just called back in without them. He was arrested late June 1953 and shot in December 1953 because he was one of the Stalin's men. And for the short time where Zhukov tried to control power but was was later bested by by, uh, Khrushchev, Beria was just um, essentially a casualty of political infighting in the Soviet era. So these were the three main murderers, I would call, of the Soviet Union. At least under Stalin. These guys were the so to speak, Stalin's executioners. And as you know, Khrushchev himself and many other Soviet leaders were also a major part of this whole system of mass murder and imprisonment. But talking about um, talking about a whole system, one important thing is to find out what did these prisoners actually is actually what did these prisoners exactly do? Well, for one, they they built stuff. And as an example, we can look at the White Sea Canal, the so-called Belomor. This project uh, helps don- helps people to kind of understand and look at the paradox in using prison labor for major construction projects a bit bit better. See, Stalin believed that the use of prison labor would benefit the Soviet economy, since the workers would be working for free. But the prisoners were not given any tools or machines, and ultimately they just built a primitive canal system that barely even functioned. Because you couldn't give them any tools or machines, because that would just cost extra, and they're prisoners, and they're not even human. But it made for really shoddy labor. That is why they were just assigned to mining asbestos or uranium. <laughs> the importance of this project lied in the fact that it gave a whole new direction to this entire Gulag system, this, this White Sea Canal. Since the location of camps, from then on, from the beginning of this project, would be determined by the project or labor which was needed. So if you needed more workers to, you know, like the Khrushchev Zeta, make all the Kazakhstan and all the steppes arable and create a major ecological catastrophe, you put gulags there. It's like in video games. Work camp, press, click, done. The White Sea Canal project was first given over to the NKVD. It's kind of interesting, because imagine if building Hoover Dam would be given to FBI. It's about the same thing. In fact, this NKVD thing, they managed the largest construction system in the USSR. They were responsible for most of the gigantic construction projects. <laughs> yeah, just just imagine a federal prison system turning over to become the biggest um, building guys in, in all the states. Or I, I don't even know, do we in the European Union have the same analogs, but it's just crazy. Building this White Sea Canal was... Uh, just a crazy idea that the Russian leaders had had for at least 200 years by this time. They had they had visioned themselves a canal that would connect two inland waterways to the White Sea, but all of them 
eventually realized that this was an unrealistic project and they didn't try to actually make it work. Stalin decided to, to just do this to make a political point. That the Soviet Union under his leadership could accomplish even the most difficult feats. And manpower is not an issue in Soviet Russia. Thus the White Sea Canal project turned itself into a test case and a major case for propaganda for the quote-unquote reforging of criminals into upstanding Soviet citizens. A small side note here. I guess every one of you know the nice saying Arbeit macht frei on the gates of Auschwitz, which are the Nazi concentration camps, um, most of them. But uh, Soviet gulags basically held the fact that uh, work doesn't make you free. You know, Nazis stated that works makes you work makes you free. Arbeit macht frei. Soviets said that work is a heroic duty of every Soviet citizen. They just said you should work. It's cool. Freedom? Oh no, no, because you're never free in the Soviet Union, guys. That that's how we worked. Anyway. Rather than using steel and cement to construct the 141 miles of waterways and 19 locks in these waterways, these prisoners had to make these structures out of sand, rock, and wood. They had no implements, they had only hand tools, pickaxe, hand soap, and some sticks. Maybe vodka, most likely some vodka too. Now, Stalin wanted to build it as soon as possible. At the end... 170,000 prisoners were working on the project and they were just given handmade saws, wooden spades, not even metal spades, wooden spades, because you could use a metal spade as a weapon or something, and wheelbarrows. These prisoners were technically, technically again, supposed to receive more food and new clothing every year since their work was deemed so important, but obviously this never happened. It was all stolen by the career criminals there or just NKVD agents because they also had to live in Siberia and you know it's cold there. Their living conditions were worse than in actual prison camps. When prisoners arrived at new work sites, they found nothing and first they had to build their own barracks from logs and organize the food supply. And mostly, as this is Siberia that we're talking about, it happened at about minus 20 degrees centigrade. Fun times. At least 25,000 people died during the construction of the White Sea Canal. Although, although, by the way, mind you, this number doesn't include those who died after they were released for illness or accident. Stalin ordered that the canal should be built in the record time, 20 months, and we're talking about a project that's deemed literally impossible. <laughs> and you know what was the scary part was? It indeed was. But this haste was very expensive at the very end. The canal was used only rarely by barges and was both too narrow and too shallow to be used by passenger ships or submarines. Interestingly enough, even though that was a complete and utter economical failure, just like, you know, most every time slave labor is used for mass projects. Another bit sidetrack, pyramids were not built by slave labor, labor they were uh, hired workers who were paid in leek, barley, uh, leek, barley, beer, and grain. So, you know, slaves did not build the pyramids. Uh, slaves did build the White Sea Canal, and that turned out to be a major sock failure. This completion of the canal, within this time frame, was a political triumph for Stalin and his economic planners. And so, our nice multi-year plans were born. 
Okay, I'm out of this for part one. I just can't take it anymore, and we shall continue on part two. Maybe part three even, because I haven't even gotten to the personal stories with the people there, and I have collected quite a few of them about how it's like to live in gulags in Siberia. You know what? Let's just, let's just end this one with a poem. It, it's, it's not a very nice poem, but uh, it's very saying, actually. Monstrous. I can hardly put in words. That thing in my head can find no place for, for which no name would do such an awful evil, that it's hard to find a word to fit its horror. How despicable is the hissing voice of spies! How disgraceful the sight of enemies among us! Shame to the mothers that give birth to these vicious dogs of unprecedented foulness! These vicious dogs whose fury is before us! Demian Bedny. That's Demian the Poor, real name for Yefim Alexeyevich Pridvorov. Written in 1937 from mass culture in Soviet Russia. By the way, Nikita Khrushchev's favorite poet. He wrote about how all these enemies of the state should be exterminated, how Bolsheviks were the greatest, and, you know, as we mentioned in the previous art episode, he was one of the very fanatical believers of this system. Fanatical believers that, you know, mass amount of people should die in prisons. Why? Because why not? Also, he's the only person ever whom uh, the very famous and much better Russian writer Mikhail Bulgakov, also a classic by this point, working in the same years, publicly despised and wrote bad things about. And you should kind of know something about it, because Mr. Bulgakov wrote Master and Margarita, which is a book you really should read. Das Vidanie, and see you later in part two. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.